All right, so I guess we start. I guess we start. Okay. okay. So, hi everybody, I'm Patrick McKenzie, better known as Patio11 on the internets, and this is my buddy Keith. Hi, I'm Keith Perheck, I live next to Patrick, and I'm pretty much unknown on the internets. So when we tell people we're right next to each other, we're right next to each other in Ogaki, Japan, how the heck do we end up here? Long, long story. Um, so I've been here for nine years, you've been here for eight, mm -hmm. pretty much, and we came here on the JET program. And I was working as an English teacher. You were working in Softopia, which is apparently um, our prefecture's gift to web development and iPhone development right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the prefectural technology incubator. Yeah, so that that, that was a um, an interesting little incubator because it's been losing money for the last seven years. And then when the iPhone came out, all the iPhone developers and everything moved in there because rent is cheap. And suddenly, the incubator is making tons and tons of money thanks to iPhone apps. So yeah, that was crazy. The uh, number one, number two, and number three most popular Japanese iPhone apps of all time were they're literally right next door to each other, all on Softopia. So um, they've been saying that they were going to make our Sweet Valley is the name of this region. They were going to make Sweet Valley into the into the Silicon Valley of Japan. And I always thought it was a pipe dream. And now we have three successful software companies in literally like a. 10 square meter space in one building here. Yeah. Blows my mind. Yeah, and essentially we're in Can the Kansas of Japan. Mm -hmm. I mean, there is nothing here. Like, yeah. literally nothing here. Yeah. And but, the, uh, well, the engineering culture of this region is much less startup friendly than, say, a Silicon Valley or a New York would be. It's dominated by one uh, monopsily employer of engineering talent, which we've both had business dealings with. Yeah. Um, um, a very large, we'll just say, a very large automaker, which everyone knows of. And who pretty much pioneered the idea of Kaizen, which yep. I'm sure you all know of right now. Yeah, the uh, big buzzword for uh, for the lean startup movement was lean manufacturing. Uh, before it was lean startup, and before it was lean manufacturing, it was just the away. And oh shoot, <laughs> sorry, we're <laughs> editing that out. Way, I said the T way. <laughs> yeah, uh, T. So a big T corp here. Uh, somewhat surprisingly. T-Corp and its various affiliated industries don't really apply the T-Corp way to software development, do they? No, and um, the real re I think the real reason that they don't do that is because software development is not seen as a manufacturing process. It's really seen as this kind of artsy-fartsy kind of thing here. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because even though it's seen, web is definitely seen as artsy-fartsy, and Programmers themselves are pretty much seen as code monkeys. Yeah. They're seen as people on the factory floor that can, you just give them the spec and they punch out the pieces and that's what programmers are for. And so what you have is a lot of managers who are used to managing assembly lines than trying to managing, manage software projects in the same way. And it doesn't really work quite as well. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, when, um, when Big T feels that way about programmers, you find out that all of their subsidiaries and everyone who works for them and everyone who deals with those subsidiaries and everyone who deals with the people who deal with those subsidiaries, the whole sort of culture feels, um, kind of filters down to that. Mm -hmm. This is true even at uh, my old day job, which was a multinational corporation in Nagoya, um, which there is no company in Nagoya that does not have business with the big T one way or another. It's very true. Very it's true. like Detroit times a thousand. Everyone is connected with the automobile manufacturing industry here, even if you're not directly connected into your day-to-day -day work. And it trickles down into things like uh, the way engineers are treated, the way um, 
the discipline is treated, uh, the the prevailing pay wages for paying salary and wages for engineers here, even at um, a large multinational corporation as a salaryman, which is a full-time employer employee who's uh, expected to be at the company until death do your part. Uh, the wages for uh, programmers are not that great here. What would you say about what's the the algorithm is a hundred dollars per year of age per month, give or take? About that, yeah. I say about that. So Keith and I are right around thirty right now. That means we'd expect at a regular company here to be making three thousand dollars a month, more or less, yeah. which as you might have seen is a wee bit less than you guys get in Silicon Valley. Yeah. Now I, I do have to say the um the pricing structure for payments of programmers and for anyone really is a holdover from the bubble days. And when you retire, you are guaranteed a very nice ten um retirement fund. Mm -hmm. And every year, because the company will do so well, you'll get a big fat bonus check, sometimes three times a year. And the problem is that Japan has been in a recession since about what, I think it's 90, 92, something like yeah, that? Yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, long, long oppression. And we don't get bonuses. There's no more job security for this until you retire at 60, now 65, soon to be 70. So really... The only, so we've lost all the benefits of working for peanuts at these companies, and yet we're still working for peanuts. Mm -hmm. Is pretty much where it comes down. So the salaries have not evolved with the change in Japan's social contract, pretty mm -hmm. much. So we had a social contract where you go into a company, and they will take care of you until the day you retire. And now it's, you go into a company, and it's pretty much hit or miss. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the peanut gallery that doesn't know, the, the peak of the uh, salary man slash lifetime employment system was in the, about the 1970s or so. And at that time, uh, it was about 30% of the Japanese labor force who was both working in a uh, large multinational corporation and had this particular seishain status that we're talking about. Um, the rest of the 70% were you know, not subject to the, uh, the lifetime employment guarantee, including most prominently women. Women, yeah. Uh, well, we have many, many stories about that, how Japanese companies time. do not treat ladies right. But that's yeah, a different time. Another time. Speaking of the social contract, though, a lot of Japanese society is built around this presumption that if you go to a good school, you will get a good job at a nice megacorp like T-Corp and then have this lifetime employment guarantee. Now, that's one of the reasons it's so hard to hire for startups out here because um, basically you get one shot at that brass ring of lifetime employment and if you don't take it right after you get out of university you are damaged goods for the rest of your life well, so i i do want to i want to cut in there that's not really how it works but that's how everyone thinks it works and this is I, yeah. I agree with both parts of that statement and the problem is when everyone thinks that's the way it works especially for people who have just gotten out of college and don't know what it's like in the world, they're going to go with the safe bet. Mm -hmm. And now we're, we're talking about lifetime employment and stuff and how that's no longer guaranteed. However, if you get into a place like NDT, which is the phone company, even um, the big T, in mm -hmm. most cases, if you are a proper contracted employee, then you will probably be there until you retire. Right. However, there's, a, there's only a handful of those companies left. I would say that there's less than 100, maybe less than 50. Yeah. In all Sounds of Japan. Right. That will that are large enough to really be able to take care of you for your entire life like that. Mm -hmm. And there's definitely a, a difference in statuses at those big companies. Uh, there's, for instance, one of the ways they manage to have the lifetime employment guarantee is that T-Corp has this, it's like an industry within an industry of supporting companies uh, built around themselves, like suppliers, vendors, that sort of thing. 
And while they won't cut their employees come hell or high water, they'll cut their vendors like nobody's business and or tell the vendors, listen, we can only afford to pay you a quarter of uh, what we did last year, so make the appropriate adjustments. And then the vendors will go down to cut their regular employees or cut their contractors most commonly. And uh, T-Corp themselves have a lot of contractors. And when you think of contractors, you just think of consultants or stuff like that. I'm talking about, like, contract employees working on the assembly lines and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And those people do get cut. Right. And, for example, um, right before recent economic crisis, which is known in Japan as the Lehman shock for some reason, uh, right before the Lehman shock, there were about 6,000 foreigners, mostly Brazilians, living in our town of Ogaki. And uh, so I go to a church out here, and after the Lehman shock, for about a year, Every week at church, we had a, you know, family X or family Y or family Z having lost all the jobs in the family is going back to Brazil. So the population of foreigners who were almost all contract labor at uh, the local manufacturing industries went from 6,000 to about 1,000 in a little less than a year. Yeah. Oh, and that was a heavy, heavy downturn. Mm-hmm. But that gives you a pretty good idea of what the labor force is like in Japan and why it's difficult to get a good startup community here. Mm-hmm. And I find, I go to a lot of programming conferences and stuff, and we really, as programmers, picked a really crappy place to be, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Because um, the entire area is ruled by T-Corp, and also there's just a very different way of thinking about business in Nagoya and the Nagoya area than in, let's say, Tokyo and Osaka. And even for Japanese people and other Japanese programmers, Looking at Nagoya, they say it's very difficult for people who are not in Nagoya to start business here. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult for new businesses to start here. Mm -hmm. So we've been doing this for the last couple of years, and we know how it actually works. But people in America always tell me I'm lying when I talk about working conditions for professionals in Japanese (laughs) society. So why don't you tell me about those lies I've been telling for the last couple of years? Just, like, sketch them out. Yeah, so I've heard some of the lies that Patrick has been telling all of you, and I have to tell you that um, I don't think any of them were actually even slight exaggerations. Well, let's recount some stories, Okay, let's recount some stories. So... Uh, coming home every night at 12.30, if you could get home. Right. Okay, yeah, that's that's Last train of the day is uh, 30 minutes after midnight. I missed that train quite a bit at the time. Yeah, the business hotel near the station actually knew Patrick by name Mm -hmm. and face, and Patrick had this name. Mondays were, had long, I think it was half-day meetings, right? Oh, yeah, Tuesday was the half-day meeting. Oh, Tuesday was the half-day meeting, and so you'd get pretty much nothing done on that day, so you'd have to work until about 12.31, end up missing the train, and he would arrive at the business hotel, and they would have a room ready for him. Mm-hmm. And if he wasn't there one week, the following week when he did show up, they would ask, why weren't you here last week? Oh, yeah. And it, it got so bad at one point, I left my Kindle there overnight and on a Monday, and uh, it was waiting at the front desk for me the following day with a note, this is Mr. McKenzie's Kindle he'll be in, it's a Tuesday. <laughs> Yeah, so um, really no exaggerations about the workload. And I actually, I fortunately was not as bad as him. I generally got, I could usually get home every night, and I usually got home around 11 or so. Um, So yeah, I I was very lucky to get home at 11. So what are we doing for this um, 12 to 19 hour day? Is it actually programming for the entire time? No, not so much. Okay, so... 
Patrick and I had very different employers. He worked at a very large... How many people was in your, were in your company? Well, let's see. At my office, there were about 70, but uh, company-wide, maybe 1,000, 1,200 employees or so. Okay, so he very large company that does only programming. I, on the other hand, was in what... Pretty much the Japanese startup, and they're called ventures, right? Um, it's generally a single person putting his money on the line, getting a loan from the bank, and trying to make a company out of it, and they're called ventures, and they're kind of like startups. Except I was the only programmer at this um, IT company. So we were a company of around seven or eight people, and I was the only programmer because my boss quit, and he was the other only programmer. So pretty much I had a lot of free reign in what I was doing, but on the other hand, for any product that my company had to ship, I had to make it from scratch. And that's not just programming, that's the design, development, graphic design, figuring out what the customer wants, how we're going to accomplish it, pretty much everything. The other people in the company were sales and management. Mm -hmm. so. so at my company, which was the uh, uh, multinational consultancy, think of like an Accenture or IBM that uh, they you know, go to a client and say, hey, we'll fix your problem, whatever the problem is, and we'll sell you smart people to make it happen, you know, in the wetware business. Um, I was the least wet bit of the wetware, we'll put it that way. Yeah. And uh, so my official title was system engineer. Um, that's one of the things in Japan. Programmers are considered code monkeys, but system engineers who tell programmers what to do are assumed to have a, a bit of uh, discretion and professional ability. So maybe half the company was people in sales or support who would uh, sell, say, a university on you should use our systems for doing your back-end uh, course management or payroll or whatever. And then the other half of the uh, company was engineers like myself who would uh, talk to the customer, figure out what it was that they actually needed for integration with their systems, and then build out the code to do it. Or assist in outsourcing operations for outsourcing the business process management to, say, <laughs> uh, low-wage countries like India. Because the feeling in the company was that even though we were a software company, writing software did not add value. That's like almost a direct quote from uh, the CEO. So we would figure out the software that needed to be written and then actually get the software written by cheap people because that would provide more value to our customer. This resulted in me doing outsourcing management to India for about three years because I was the only one in the company who could speak good enough English to manage it. And that was an experience. Yeah, um, I, I love... You had actually told me about some of the technical docs that they had sent before you were on the project, mm -hmm. where they would actually put the Japanese technical docs into Google Translate and then just ship them over. Yeah, um, I tried to stop that and was less successful than I wanted to be. Um, at one point, I told my boss, listen boss, we're shipping out uh, several thousand pages of technical documentations for this particular subsystem, which is absolutely, it, it puts the critical and business critical. You need to clear the next month of my schedule so I can translate them. And he said, well, you know, your fully loaded cost as an engineer is uh, about $6,000 a month, now 3,000 times a factor of two for, you know, pension contribution, taxes, all that uh, kind of thing. So 6000 a month is too much to pay for translation. We want to get it done for about four, so we're going to have an Indian company do the translation for us. I said, I don't really love that plan, but I'll do it, but I want to spot check the quality of their translation just to make sure we're, we're getting our money's worth. And so the first day I get back a Excel file, I can't remember exactly what the error was, but on like the first page there was, you know, describing black as white, like a clear, clear error. And I mail uh, the Indian subsidiary and say, hey, I was spot checking the quality of your translation and there's just this glaring error on the first page that makes me worry about the rest of the documents. 
uh, can you please tell your translators to be careful? And uh, they mailed back to me a few hours later, we don't agree this is an error. And it's literally a translation of, like, black is white or something. So I mailed back, this is absolutely an error. I haven't had the opportunity to discuss it with a uh, native speaker of Japanese coworker, but there's no possible way that your translator is translating this correctly. And I get a mail back, we don't agree. I said, you need to put your translator on the phone with me now because we need to discuss this. Um, the project will not proceed if you have this level of understanding of what the requirements are. And they said, we discussed with three authorities and all of them uh, agree with our translation, so you're outvoted. And I said, who are your three authorities? And they said, uh, Google Translate, Babelfish, and uh, what is it, AltaVista Alta Translate? Vista, yeah. So yeah, I was outvoted by three computers who... I'll use the same dictionary, apparently. Um, and that sort of thing happened all the time. So they had billed us literally $4,000 for having people do the manual copy-pasting work into Translate and build it as translation services. Yeah, yeah that project didn't work out very well. <laughs> so um, I actually I want to jump back real quick. Um, you had mentioned the difference between SE and programmers, um, mm -hmm. system engineers and programmers. And you had a, you had a blog post I think it was two weeks ago, and mm -hmm. got put on Hacker News, and everyone was like, oh, I'm a programmer, so that's what I'm going to call myself. I'm not going to call myself a system engineer. And this is really one of the places where it's a very clear-cut difference. It doesn't matter what it is you do all day. Mm -hmm. A simple name change raises your pay grade pretty much double. Mm -hmm. um, the amount of things that you are trusted with, the amount of things that is decided that you do... and. This is not to say that programmers are not given system engineer responsibilities. Mm -hmm. They're just not believed to be able to accomplish them. Right. Right. So it doesn't matter what you're doing in Japan, as long as you're a programmer, call yourself a system engineer and get double your pay. Right. Um, and actually, every time I had a bug for about the first two years of working at a company, often because I didn't quite understand the requirements in the document, because, hey, all the documents are written in... Uh, highly technical Japanese, and my coworkers would be, be berating me for the bug or uh, absence of testing, which failed to reveal the bug, or uh, just being careless, because I'm often careless. I would say, listen, Patrick, you know, this isn't acceptable. You're not a programmer. This should have been taken care of. Uh, so definitely with regards to Japan, call yourself a system engineer if you have the, if you have the choice. Even with regards to America, um, you know, I do programming. I like programming. I love programming. The, the craft and actual activity of programming really, really appeal to me. But as a consultant, when I'm talking to businesses, I never describe the value that I'm adding to the business as, okay, I'm going to program um, some stuff for you in Rails. Because businesses don't really see it on that same wavelength. Even businesses that are run by, like, literally engineers, engineers, it's like, um, you know, the fog creeks of the world, which really love programming and the craft of programming, you know, at the end of the day, they're a business, so you need to be connecting to them on that business level of here are the concrete benefits you're going to get from doing this engagement with right. me. And what it is, it's essentially the same thing. When you sell a product, you don't sell the features, you sell the benefits. Right. Right. You're not, you are programming, and that's the feature that you're selling, but that's not the benefit. The benefit is not, I'm going to write code for you. The benefit is, I'm going to make a system that does this awesome thing. Mm -hmm. And this awesome thing is going to make you a million effing dollars. Right. And that's what you sell. And, right. that, and that's why you call yourself a system engineer instead of a programmer. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, providing solutions instead of providing software. Solution uh, architect. That solution was actually architect. my... That, it was so funny. My um, job title at my company... Now, I am the sole programmer or whatever at my company. Has changed so many times. Mm -hmm. I think it changed seven or eight times 
in the last four years. Mm-hmm. Like, and my favorite one, I think, was Solution Architect, because it just says nothing about what I do whatsoever. But civilians, I don't know, whatever you call people who aren't engineers, they do sometimes respond to things like, what is printed on your business card? So that being the reality, adjust yourself to the reality rather than what you think your um, ideal world would look like. Yeah. And, you know, if you really want to put programmer on your business card, write it in binary on the back or something like Mm -hmm. that, or put it in part of the design or something. Mm -hmm. Right. And... You know, you can always call yourself what you want when you're around just us geeks, but when off Facker News and when you're talking, you know, like rate negotiations with customers, adjust to their view of the world. It will make you happier in life. Exactly. exactly. And, you know, don't believe us, it, A-B test it. <laughs> I, I actually did this. I, um, I think I had posted about this on Hacker News. So I had gone to a prospective client with another programming friend of mine, and we do the exact same thing. Pretty much we're same level technically, same level business-wise. And we decided, hey, we're going to try this out. He called himself a system engineer. I called myself a programmer. For the rest of the um, meeting, they deferred to him over me for every single thing. Okay? So just changing that one little word on your business card or when you introduce yourself makes a huge difference. Mm -hmm. It's really just... You you have to change yourself to fit your customer's expectations. Mm Mm-hmm. And obviously, you know, the culture of businesses in Japan is very different from, well, Japan is a big place. It's kind of like saying the culture in America, you know, Kansas is a different place than Texas is a different place than a tech startup specifically in Mountain View, California. But the business culture of, say, metropolitan Nagoya, Japan, is very different than the business culture of New York City or at a tech startup in New York City or at a financial services firm in New York City or specifically Goldman Sachs in New York City. But... You have to adjust yourself to whatever that particular uh, situation you find yourself is, in is. But that being said, there's very, very few places I'm aware of calling yourself a programmer as a career-enhancing move. Yeah. All right, so well, let's stop berating everyone for calling themselves programmers. Right. What do you say? You want to move on to Kaizen? Sure, let's move on to Kaizen. Okay, so everyone, I'm sure, knows Kaizen. And actually, I got a... Um... Actually, I don't think that's true. So why you don't, don't you so? okay. explain what Kaizen is? Uh, really? Because I, I, I got a um, photo from one of my friends in, in Nashville, of all places. And she, had, she went to a burger joint and had the Kaizen burger. Right? It's this huge burger with beef, Kobe beef and, like, cheese and all this stuff. And they just so, called it the Kaizen burger. That sounds delicious, but I think still the not rest of the America is not caught up to Nashville yet. So uh, let's go. Everyone should catch up with Nashville, I swear. <laughs> um, okay, so Kaizen is a term in Japanese which means improvement. And, and that's the general translation. And what it has come to mean in American English is the Im- reiteration and improvement systems and uh, processes that were founded pretty much by Toyota. Mm-hmm. And essentially it's reiteration over a design in order to get rid of flaws and to make a better product. And you see this, this is pretty much the, the founding corner, the cornerstone of any physical manufacturing process. So any car that you see, um, Apple does it with their Macintoshes, everything is iterated and iterated. They make a design, they put it out there, they find out what's wrong, and they slightly change it, they slightly fix it, and they keep reiterating and reiterating, and then they finally get a great product. Mm-hmm. And that's how Toyota has worked, that's how most manufacturing works. And so, I think this idea is so powerful that there is, 
you know, been hundreds of volumes written about the Japanese economic miracle. And honestly, this and the related Toyota process improvements were so powerful that they were able to kind of, if you have that going for you and the rest of the world hasn't caught on to it yet, you can do all manner of stuff totally stupidly, like working for 20 hours a day with people who are half dead from exhaustion, and you'll still raffle stomp over the competition. Exactly, exactly. So where um, Kaizen comes into our, um, our kind of conversation now is that Kaizen has kind of left the physical manufacturing world and is starting to go into the software development. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of the, uh, if you read Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup, which, by the way, is a fantastic read, and you should read it if you haven't already. Uh, it's one of the ideas he touches on a lot. Yeah, yeah. I actually want to pick up a copy of that. I saw that in your house when I was over there. So one of the ways that Kaizen is uh, relevant, not just to people who are manufacturing physical products, but also to uh, software developers who are manufacturing a software or an experience delivered over the Internet, is that... We can do things like A-B testing, so we can tell in almost real time which for which of two versions or multiple versions of a website, when exposed to users, causes those users to have a happy experience. Whether that's a happy experience judged by like business goals, you know, they buy more of the software, they sign up for your email list more often, or whether it's judged by the uh, user's success with the software. Uh, for example, I sell software that makes bingo cards for elementary school teachers. If the school teachers can't successfully make bingo cards, that's sort of a problem for me. Yeah. So I can redesign the interface of my software such that they actually achieve task success. And the great thing about this iteration and stuff when we're dealing with software, especially web apps, is that the feedback is so immediate. And the cost for doing these iteration tests, these split tests, is so low. Mm-hmm. How long does it take you to make a split test? One line of code. One line of code. It's the only way to do it. All right. So in one line of code, you can then test which creates the better user experience. No. This Kaizen originated in manufacturing. So in manufacturing, it's a much more expensive process, right? You have to build it, which means you have to use the raw materials. You have to create the um, building process. Then you have to um, ramp up production and ship it to the customer. The customer has to get feedback. We're talking maybe two, three years to get feedback (laughs) on a single design before you can iterate. And now we can iterate. If you have enough users on your site, you can get an answer with a split test in about a day. Mm-hmm. So, at, oh goodness, at like Facebook or Google scales, you can get it in literally seconds. Yeah. But um, even at you know fairly minor, uh, the bingo card creators of the world, I can throw out a test every Monday and have statistically confident results uh, generally by the following week. Yeah. Which was a it's a wonderful thing when you don't have much time to work on a site. Uh, if you're getting about 100 visitors a day or whatnot, then you can throw something up, come back a week later, have results. And it doesn't block any of your other activities for the week. You can continue talking to customers or continue writing documentation, continue producing the new feature. And then when you're ready for it, take a look at the results of the A-B tests and generally you know, just make a one-click to pick result A or over result B or yeah. whatever the uh, stats tell you to do. Yeah. So what, what we're actually seeing, so um, Patrick's A-B testing software, he made it himself called A-Bingo in Rails. It's amazing. You should pick it up. I use Visual Website Optimizer, which is a great software, all JavaScript-based, works on any page. I <laughs> recommend that as well. But what we're seeing is a change from manufacturing, where in the manufacturing, you could have a thousand ideas, but your iteration time is just around maybe six months at the fastest, a year, maybe two or three if you're talking something huge like a car. What we've changed is with these software iterations, so one line of code takes maybe five minutes to implement. Um, VWO does the same thing. It takes maybe five, ten minutes to implement. What takes more time now is to actually think of what we're testing. Mm -hmm. So we've really changed. Testing it is so 
infinitesimal. The time it takes to test something takes is so infinitesimal that thinking of good tests takes more time mm-hmm. now, which is amazing, which is absolutely amazing that we're in this technological area that we can test things as fast as we literally think them up. Right. It also prevents a lot of waste in the company. Like, have you ever been at this meeting? I once had a six-hour meeting involving four people, and we literally six hours to discuss the text that was going to be placed on a button for signing up to a mailing list. And the mailing list was only getting like 50 signups a week anyhow. So there's an actual cost to that, right? Like probably you know, four people to do fully, the fully loaded cost for that meeting was on the order of like $300 an hour times six hours. So almost $2,000 spent just to determine the cost of um, a call to action on a button that didn't really matter anyhow. And if you have a culture in your organization of testing things, that would literally have been like a 45-second discussion. Like, I think it should be sign up for a mailing list. I think it should be sign up now. Okay, we'll throw it in a test. Done. And you save that $2,000 and spend it on stuff that actually matters to your business and your customers and the world at large. Yeah, so going back to the Japanese side of things, this is a big thing where they don't consider software to be a manufacturing process, <laughs> right? So testing in Japan is, I mean, now we have um, unit testing, and testing like that. But the idea of user-based testing mm-hmm. is pretty much non-existent. Right. Like, almost completely non-existent, unless you're going into very large, very in-the-know tech companies. Advertising, I've been, I've dealt with one or two. Mm-hmm. I've dealt with one or two. They're not common at all. Right. But, um, for example, one of the, um, uh, several of the big startups based in Tokyo are in the uh, mobile gaming space. And uh, there's a American company you've probably heard of they allow you to make virtual cabbages and then like water the virtual cabbages and sometimes the virtual cabbages rot. And this company is very, very sophisticated on their iterative improvement processes, including A-B testing and collecting user metrics, what have you. They recently opened a Tokyo office and somebody there said, yeah, we're pretty much planning on effing killing all the Japanese companies in this space. And I do not love that company, but I think they are likely to achieve that goal simply because just like, you know, Toyota versus the American manufacturers, if there are 10 people in a fight, and only one of them understands how to use science. I already know who's going to win. I, I like that science is the thing that's going to win the fight. Science? <laughs> it's seriously revenge of the geeks out there right now. I mean... It, it Really, it is. What we have now, for the first time in history, I think we have so much data that we, we don't have enough people to process it. Mm-hmm. Like, we have so much information that... Really, what we need to do now is just process all this great information and put it to good use, and we just don't have the resources yet. Right. And so what we need is math, mathematicians, math students and everything to look at this data, go over this data, find and analyze this data. Yeah, um, and also just you know, speaking from the perspective of things you can do for your career, um, these sort of skill sets and, you know, A-B testing as a skill set, not really all that hard to pick up. I mean, you know, grab a book, study it for a week, and then, you know, the mechanics are dead simple. After that, it's just uh, a matter of coming up with what actually to test. But that skill is fantastically rare and more rare than, say, skill with creating web apps and PHP or mm-hmm. Ruby on Rails. And because it has direct bottom line implications to the business where it's like, you know, what's 5% of your sales for an X quarter? When you're talking to a company the size of, say, T-Corp or uh, 5% of your sales for the line of business uh, for your website to, like, a Bank of America of the world. If you can routinely quote numbers like that, 
Like you are no longer in the $60 to $100 an hour bucket with other programmers. You are in the strategic initiatives that add 5% to Bank of America's bottom line. So, th- yeah, th- and this is scary really, stuff. <laughs> I really hate to keep coming back to this software engineer or um, system engineer versus programmer. Implementing an A-B test takes one line of code, takes five minutes to do. If you are the person that d- used that one line of code, changed the color of a button from blue to red, and added 5% to a multi-million dollar company's bottom line, you're no longer the programmer who implemented that. You're the guy who added 5% to a multi-million dollar bottom line. Mm-hmm. And that's what matters. Right. Building right scale up to match, particularly when you get uh, clueful clients. Like I wouldn't be comfortable talking about mine, but... Um... Well, suffice it to say, if you're, you know, portfolio website, not that I have a portfolio website, but... Um, you need to make them. Uh, well, eh, yes and no. Like, I can point to client, when, when someone comes to me and says, hey, um, we'd like to hire you for this thing. Do you have an example of people it's worked for before? I can informally say, well, I've worked for X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z have reported this kind of result. Um, that's, by the way, a trick when you're dealing with clients. Um, and it's not a trick because both of you will benefit from this. But say, uh, look, um, if we have a successful result with this project, I would like to write that successful uh, result up as like a blog post or something. And that will be to our mutual benefit. You'll get additional attention because of me writing the blog post, and I'll get something to keep for my portfolio. Phrase like that, almost all clients will say yes to it. And it is a wonderfully, wonderfully, wonderful thing to arrange it for yourself as a consultant. For example, um, when I was working with Fog Creek, uh, part of the, uh, when it became obvious that the engagement was going to work out for both of us, I said, hey, uh, you know, you guys are always looking for new topics for your blog post. Why don't you let me go straight one about um, what we did for the marketing? And they said, oh, yeah, let's do that. And so I wrote something called, um, what was it, our marketing is up Fog Creek and how we fixed it or something to that effect where we talked about things like, oh, you know, we made these changes to the website, and as a result, our Fall Creek conversion rate went up by 10%, which, you know, make a guess of how much money Fall Creek makes in a year at 10% to that. It's kind of meaningful, right? But, um, so Fall Creek is obviously very happy with this, but in terms of dealing with my other clients, when they say, oh, man, Patrick, that number you just quoted to me is a lot of money. Um, how do I justify that to the investors, or how do I justify that to my team? I say, well, uh, if you look at this post over here by Fog Creek, they said I added about 10%. You know. And uh, that's one way to deal with pricing objections. And that's actually something I've been working on with. So we were talking earlier about how the split testing and stuff is just not known in Japan. And really what I'm planning on doing or what I'm trying to do with my company now is bring split testing and just bring modern iterative development practices into Japan. And one thing I've found when dealing with my company with my customers is that they feel the same way. It's like, how do I add this to my bottom line? I say, well, I improved such and such company who makes a million dollars a year by 10%. And sometimes they understand that, sometimes they don't. And when they don't understand, I say, well, why don't we do it like this? You pay me half what I'm charging, and for every percent over your current, you give me another X amount of dollars. And people seem very happy about that until, of course, the results come in and they end up paying me three times what they were originally going to plan. Pay me. Yeah. Paper performance is an interesting model. Um, I it's, don't it's not do... great. It's, it's not the best, but... Yeah. Uh, 
I am not a big fan of uh, pay-for-performance arrangements. Um, not to say I would never do them, but I typically try against them. Here's one reason. So in any sort of project, you have execution risk. And um, generally, as a consultant, you want to be responsible for your own risks, but not risks external to your own execution. So if, for example, you want to do a pay-per-performance arrangement for search engine optimization or for A-B testing or conversion optimization for a startup, that startup's priorities might change on a dime, like one week after you get out of the building, which frequently happens. And uh, say the project you were working on gets shelved. This happens at multinational corporations, too, all the time. So you're not going to make your pay performance numbers, no matter how good the quality of your underlying work. And because typically with a pay performance arrangement, you're going to be getting a smaller number up front, plus a payment if you hit particular milestones. You won't get that milestone payment, and you're going to end up working for a fraction of your rate. And working for a fraction of your rate is not the purpose of the exercise. So unless there was a client who had a clear reason not to pivot on the Right. And I, I should have um, prefaced that with saying that these are clients that I have had work with before at my mm-hmm. previous companies and that I do trust and who I know are not going to just shelve the entire project mm-hmm. and I'm going to get put in the lurch. These are things that part of the contract of doing the performance-based um, payment is that they're going that I'm going to be setting it up and they're going to be putting it out there mm-hmm. and that it is going to run. And so, it's like you said, it's not 100%. Nothing's ever 100%. But it's, I would never do it for, like, especially a large company that I've never worked with before. Mm-hmm. I would never do a um, performance-based review, I don't think. Right. Um, there's also companies where engineers have a funny notion of, like, what the price of things is. You know, if I say $3,000, that sounds like a lot of money to us because, hey, we worked for months for that, right? But um, $3,000 for a real company that has real assets and real employees, like... That's literally below their capability of measuring stuff. Like yeah. it, it isn't a line item on the annual report. It isn't even an appendix to an appendix on the line item of the of the annual report. You really have to get into the five figures to even like hit the, you know, hit on the radar screen at all. And given that, if you were thinking like, okay, we'll have a, a variable price thing between three thousand dollars and fifteen thousand dollars or a charge at twenty thousand dollars there's a lot of businesses will, that will say give me the twenty thousand that will make my life easier because i won't have to get it a variable charge approved through the accounting division or my higher-ups or whatever because that's going to you know that's not our established process whereas if i just say it's twenty thousand dollar coming out of budget x budget x has hundreds of thousands of dollars in it because there's employees in there too wouldn't be a problem at all right um, and working with well not with um t-corp in particular, but with other co- companies of that size, we would have our sales reps on their side come to us and say, our budget is X amount of dollars. Make it under under that. And you could make it within $1 of that. And that's not their budget. That's the budget they have to, before they have to sign off. So if they go over that line, mm-hmm. they have to get the sign off of um, their manager or, God forbid, the um, vice president or someone. And as long as it's under that number, even by a dollar, they can sign off on them themselves, and that makes their lives so much easier. Mm-hmm. You were saying something interesting earlier, which was that you, um, you hope to bring in A-B testing and these modern techniques in mm-hmm. Japan. That's a something I've heard a lot in my working with my other companies, because the Japanese, Japanese engineering with specific regards to, say, web engineering is kind of lagging a couple of years behind the U.S. right now, right? Oh, Let's so far talk about the, oh. the 
uh, so the status things. Um, um, so the Joel test is getting uh, almost 10 years old now. But uh, Is it 10 years already? Almost oh 10 God. years, I think. We're talking about basic things like source control, having a uh, quality department, yada, yada. Um, Japan, not quite there yet. Like, So I worked with a company that worked with other companies. We had source control, thank God. Subversion, not Git, but... Um, and. Not to be all geeky like that. Subversion is an excellent source control system. It's heads and tails better than no source control yeah. system, which is the competition here. Yeah. Um, similarly, we write big freaking enterprise applications in Java with homegrown web frameworks, which were absolute pain in the butts to work with. One of the reasons I have like 60,000 hacker news karma is because there was a uh, compile and deploy step that literally took like five minutes to run. So if I wanted to change say, you know, the number of columns on a particular table. Testing that would take upwards of an hour. You know, change, oh, whoops, I had a one-character bug in my HTML, I rerun it, it's going to take five minutes, yada, yada. Um, and the amount of friction involved in that process was just destroying my productivity. But with the way companies measure productivity here, you know, number of engineering hours expended, that looked very good. <laughs> um, but uh, modern web frameworks like Ruby on Rails, Django, all the fun stuff. It's, uh, it's really ironic that... Um that Ruby was created by a Japanese man, and yet Ruby on Rails is pretty much unknown here. And okay, I'm, I'm, maybe this will change a little bit because now I think an engineer has hired Mots, right? Yeah, he was it engineer. I thought it was um, Hiroku. Maybe yeah, it was Hiroku. Hiroku, it was sorry. Hiroku. Um, Hiroku. By the way, the uh, the most Japanese name on an American company I've ever heard. Yeah, I know. But um, actually, there are Rails conferences here, and um, it's getting more and more popular. But <laughs> the problem is that web apps themselves are still not that popular here. And I think part of that is done in by the fact that... So there are maybe, I think, four or five countries in the world that have IE6 uses above 25, 25%. Mm -hmm. And I believe they are Thailand, China, and Japan. Mm -hmm. And China actually China actually has, I think, 23 or 22. It's really quickly dropping. But mm -hmm. Japan still relies on IE6 so much. And mm -hmm. the reason for this is that back when IE6, when XP came out, they had, we were still before, not really in the recession, but we still had a lot of money as a country, right? And so everyone had their IT departments and everyone had these huge um, reduxes and they made all their systems compatible with XP and it was great and wonderful. And then the money starts drying up and the first thing to go is the tech departments, right? So I've, I've worked with a couple of large companies that literally had outsourced their tech support, not tech support, but their tech system. Mm -hmm. And so there was no one at the company anymore who could even do anything. Like, let's say they needed a new computer set up or a new proxy or one of their NATs died or something. There was no one at the company who could fix that. Oh, that brings up a great topic. So you've probably heard that uh, uh, engineering productivity is worth pretty much any amount of money relative to engineering salaries. So, you know, get two big wide screens, it's only 400 bucks extra. At the company I worked at, um, and this is very much Nagoya way of looking at things. Uh, they had outs you know, despite being a programming company, they had outsourced the internal IT, so that rather than buying each programmer a computer, they would lease a computer through you know blah 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 whatever for eighty bucks a month, and uh, uh, by default it was a you know years old computer with let's say uh, one gig of RAM, a processor that would have been great in like two thousand three, and a 14 or 15 inch monitor oh for a desktop God. system and there was literally no button you could push at the company to get a better computer than that okay. is once the rules are set 
it's not worth the bureaucratic hassle and even the time to think about to change it for right. the company, right? And what it does is, in the end, it just hurts everyone. And another factor about uh, web apps in Japan is that a huge portion of Japanese use of the internet is not actually on real browsers. It's on the lovely fake browsers that you find in uh, old pre-iPhone uh, Japanese phones. feature phones. Man, that's an entire topic in itself, yeah. right? Uh, so Japan had hardware-wise the what were probably the most advanced uh, cell phones in the world until... Well, also software-wise. Mm -hmm. So um, when we were still dealing with WAP and HTML and Wiko Wacko 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 or whatever the hell we had back in early 90s and stuff, Japanese cell phones had iMode, which is a full-featured HTML subset and they were browsing websites in 91 mm -hmm. on their Websites cell with pictures and JavaScript. It was amazing. Um, and then it didn't really change for like the next 15, 16 years. Yeah, they're, so. they're still browsing the same web pages uh, 20 years later. Yeah. And um, so they call this the Galapagos effect, like you know, the Galapagos uh, Islands, which have you know a variety of different finches that are found nowhere else in the world. Um, Japan had a variety of very advanced hardware platforms but the software for each of the hardware platforms would be literally handwritten assembly each time right. a new uh, model came out. And uh, that was the dominant way to do cell phone development. And with like minor iterations, like, okay, we'll put a JRE on it and allow you to run Java code. But that was the dominant cell phone uh, paradigm up until the iPhone came out. And the iPhone proceeded to a raffle stamp over the Japanese carriers, right? Pretty much, pretty much. And now we have Android phones as well, and a lot <laughs> of Android phones. The problem is, I mean, and I think it's the, pretty much the same in America right now, is that you don't get the updates because the Galapagos model is still the common way of thinking for any cell phone besides the iPhone. So you have this Android-based amazing phone that is outdated in one to two months and will never receive an update for the life of the contract. Mm -hmm. um, just a, a feature of the Japanese consumer electronics market, uh, people tend to renew not renew, that's the Japanese way of saying it. Uh, they tend to upgrade their uh, devices on a very quick clicker. Very quick, very quick. Um, Japanese cell phone contracts are kind of built under the assumption that you'll... And contracts aren't the primary way to sell cell phones in Japan, although that's kind of changing recently. Yeah. But the um, the assumption is that the core market for cell phones will update their handset uh, once a year or more frequently than that. Yeah. In, in America, it's based because everyone's on the two-year contract. Mm -hmm. So people generally, the companies assume that you'll update your phone when your two-year contract is up. And in Japan, even though there's a two-year contract, most people update their phone, I would say, once a year. Mm -hmm. And depending on how trendy you are, even more. Mm -hmm. One of the main early adopters for cell phones in Japan, and I swear I'm not making this up, high school girls. Oh, yes. Um, they actually, their use of the phone as a kind of a mobile slash internet platform uh, drives quite a bit of the development here. What was the, I can never remember which of the companies it was, but um, uh, a couple of years ago when smartphones were starting to get popular, they one of the companies was literally pitching them as a fashion accessory item. So in addition to pitching, you know, it has a camera, you can take photos with your friends, and here's what the software does. They would pitch, like, and here are the varieties of things you can stick on the phone to make it look different but similar to your girlfriend's phones, such that each of you looks trendy in your own little specialized individual, but not too individual way. Right. right. And they're, they're starting to do that with the um, Androids now. <laughs> so each of the Androids has pre-installed software for each kind of click mm -hmm. for the um, Japanese high school girls. It's really interesting to look at 
depressing as a um, programmer, but mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you could just customize the wallpaper yourself and not have to pay those $600 for the new phone. But, oh well. Yeah. Uh, you know, meet the customers where they're at, right? Right, right. Do we want to go on to websites as kind of like, I, I, I still have not been able to figure out how to really put this other, not in Japanese. Well, say it in Japanese and maybe I'll so, um now I'm going to forget it in Japanese. What was it? Um, ore ore homepage kind of thing. So what right. What it really is, is... So you have the ore ore framework, which is the framework that you built and you love to death and is not useful at, ever, mm -hmm. at all. And so the, the web page is pretty much, in a lot of cases... Okay, here, here's what I'm going to... Here's how I'm going to say it. The business card web page, mm -hmm. I think, is really the best way to put it. A business card web page that doesn't accomplish anything... Mm -hmm first of all, and in addition to not accomplishing anything, is made in a way so that the president of the company feels vindicated that he has spent enough money on his webpage. Mm -hmm. So even if they have like a goal like get customers or tell customers about our company, it's not something that they're, it's not something that they're working towards. They're not investing any time or effort into the homepage other than saying, oh, we need a homepage. Mm -hmm. I spent $6,000 on a designer to design me a homepage in Dreamweaver. Mm -hmm. I think we should talk about those. Let's talk about this. Yes. So the uh, so we've got this idea of having a kind of a, a brochure where a site for maybe an offline corporation or even for even uh, companies that are, you know, SaaS, uh, internet startups, whatnot. The homepage is uh, designed not for the interests of the business, but rather for interests of the stakeholders in the business, yeah. which are two very different things. Um, often there's like, man, I've seen home sites that were home pages that were literally battlegrounds. Like there was a war between the engineering department and the marketing department and both sides lost <laughs> where <laughs> engineering was like, we want to build features. We don't want to work in on any of that, like crap on the homepage that doesn't require any technical expertise whatsoever in the marketing departments. We have this message and this brand that we want to get across. And the, the end result of that war was a page that was not successful in converting anybody and that no one clearly owned such that even very smart companies um, often have just, they, you know, engineering's job is, job is to ship more features to the customer. Marketing's job is to, you know, brand or whatever brand their, get, get whatever their magic, users, yeah. magic stuff is. Uh, but eyeballs. nobody's job was to, you know, measure the uh, conversions on the page or to increase those over time. Right. And so I've gone into very smart, successful well-managed companies where you could ask something like, so how many trials did you guys do last week? And the answer would be, we don't know. Um, there's probably a SQL query we can run somewhere that will tell us that. Yeah. I had a similar thing. It was, it, this was actually very um, eye-opening. I, I did a um, reservation system, a really cool place. I'm not going to say their name, but very, very cool place. Um, and they have online and phone reservation systems, right? And the phone reservations, they have a back end to their online system that the people at the front desk use to take the reservations, right? Mm -hmm. And so I could see when I was doing the analysts for their site, I could see how many reservations they had, but not where they came from. I couldn't say if they were, see if they were online or if they were from the phone. So I asked the um, person in charge, I said, so how, what percentage is online? What percentage is phone? And he said, I think at least 80% of our, um, 
of our reservations are from online. I only think 20% are from the phone. I said, wow, that's, that's much more than I thought. I thought that the phone would be much, much more popular. I said, yeah, but those are the numbers, I, I think. So I installed Google Analytics, and I tried it, and I think that they were getting maybe 20%, maybe less, less than 20% online, mm -hmm. and the rest were all phones. So they had no idea of even the number of um, reservations that were coming in and where they were coming from, mm -hmm. right? And doing a little more analytics, I found out that those 20% were the people who got through the dropout phase. So their conversion was horrible. They had a conversion rate of, I think, 15% mm -hmm. from people who had come to the site wanting to reserve mm -hmm. to people who actually reserved. So right. that was so, very eye-opening for them. Yeah. the um, And, you know, it's easy to laugh at them in hindsight, right? But I guarantee you, if you run a business right now, there's some number that is key to your business that you are not tracking. And that would be very eye-opening to you. Um, the one that I routinely bring up for clients is, uh, do you know how, like, what percentage of people who, who sign up for the free trial or use your software the first time use it a second time? And that number is almost always depressingly low. Yeah. Um, when I started tracking it for Bingo Card Creator, it was about only 40% of people came back a second time. These days it's up to 60%, which, you know, it's 50% left to do wonderful things for my business, but man, and there's still 40% of people would not even give it a second look. Um, 40% as a, you know, before we start tracking number has been ballpark that's been uh, uh, fairly consistent across a lot of clients of mine. And it's just like, a, whoa, we never, you know, no one ever said, it gives you a book that says you should be tracking this because it's abysmal right now and you should improve it. But um, if you're not tracking that, I guarantee you it is probably abysmal right now and you should probably try to improve it. You should have a book about that. You should just write a book about, these are the things you should be tracking, why the hell aren't you? Yeah, everybody tells me I should write a book, but writing a book Maybe a is pamphlet. terrible. Yeah. <laughs> See, it's funny. Like, if I write a blog post, people will read it and maybe comment on it for Hacker News, and it'll be forgotten the day after. Ideally, if I wrote a book, it would be referenceable by people. You know, people feel that despite being essentially the same product, if you put 2,000 words in a book as opposed to putting 2,000 words in a blog post, well, if you put 2,000 words in a blog post, people are going to be like, too long, didn't, didn't read, read dude. Yeah. But if you put 2,000 words in a book, people perceive their value as being higher than a blog post. Oh, yeah, definitely. But at the same time, if I put 2,000 words in a book or, you know, however many thousand words, um, that's just a terrible, terrible use of my time uh, business-wise. Like, even if I sell the book at you know, a couple hundred copies at uh, what, 20 or 50 or $100 a piece. Not a meaningful amount of money relative to getting one of my happy consulting clients on the phone and being like, hey, uh, I have an idea that I want to try for you guys. Um, hopefully it'll do as well as the last time. Let's get this going. However, one thing you might want to try is even just like a blog collection and get a physical printed book. Um, one of my clients, he's actually considering giving his book away mm -hmm. just because of the amount of press it gets him. And we did um, we did some welcome page tests, right? Mm -hmm. And the first one was picture of him, where he graduated from, and the things that he's accomplished. Second one was a big old picture of his book, I'm a New York best, um, Times bestseller. Mm -hmm. Third one was, I've been on NBC with a video of him being on NBC, right? Mm -hmm. So each of those, so the one that says, I've done all this, it was fairly okay, right? Mm -hmm. The one that says, I published a book that was a bestseller, I think it was 100% better, mm -hmm. right? 100% better was that, what, than that was I was on TV. Mm -hmm. And pretty much once you get on TV, 
people will buy your shit, no matter what you're hawking. If you're on, if you have a clip of you being on TV, they will buy anything you want. This, by the way, is hilariously underexploited by engineers and people in the startup community, but it's well known among direct marketers. After you have press written about you, like, you know, if the New York Times blurs about you, even one sentence worth. In all your copy from that point out, you put the logo of the New York Times and you say, as appeared in the New, New York, York Times. Times. Oh, yes. And that will increase your conversion rate up the wazoo because you suddenly jump from website I've never heard of and don't trust on the internet to endorsed by the voice of what, what the gray lady is, the, the paper of record. Yeah. So you will routinely see this on some of the skeezier direct marketing pages, even if they haven't actually been on the New York Times. Yeah. They'll say the product category has been endorsed by the New York Times, like social network, as seen on, you know, as reported about in the New York Times, where they haven't been reported about, but a social network, meaning Facebook, has been reported about. I wouldn't be happy doing that, but, you know, definitely if you're a company like, say, a Fog Creek or somebody who is, your profile is legitimately high enough to get uh, placed in the New York Times, like Fog Creek has had their office written about in the New York Times before, that should probably be on the website somewhere. Yeah. I don't know if that is on the website. We, Time we, to mail we, that. We should talk to Joel about that. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to say you don't want to put on is, as seen on TV. Never put as seen on TV, especially that, the red circular logo with all the, the little explosions that you see on like the $5 um, ab <laughs> stretchers or whatever. Yeah, that, that's probably not the best thing. Yeah, people may have cottoned on to the fact that that means, oh, well, they paid for an infomercial. Yeah, yeah. But um, uh, retrofitting an explanation like that, like, oh, I think the reason for that result is probably because blah, that's witchcraft. Have your intuitions and have your thoughts about what will probably work for the site. But like we were I'm emphasizing earlier, it's so cheap to test these things, you should be continuously testing them. Yeah. Just, I mean, even if you have, like, a banner space in your uh, on your homepage... Just switch out the banners. Mm-hmm. Do an A-B test with that. Switch out the banners. See which ones perform better. And it's so simple. It's, it's so, so simple. simple. And it's absolutely crazy the amount of lift you can get for an established business that produces value and has been doing so for a decade just by switching out banners. Like, <laughs> Speaking of should, which. You should. Are you going to tell about your um, the bingo card creator? Oh, I should tell about the yes. bingo card creator story, right? Okay. So I went to um, I went on a six-week American tour recently. And uh, partly to drum up consulting business, partly to, you know, go see Silicon Valley and uh, meet the people I've only been reading about on Hacker News, and partly, you know, just a change of pace. And so I went to New York City, um, went over to Fog Creek, and I chatted with them a little bit. And while I was in New York, New York City, I went to something called a hacker school. And, you know, it's a bunch of people who are learning how to become better programmers, and they gave me the opportunity to talk to everybody and to teach a lesson on anything I thought they would find valuable. I think a lot of hackers don't know about A-B testing, so I uh, did a live demo of A-B testing using A-Bingo. And I said, this is literally how easy it is to make an A-B test. We're going to live code one for my front page right now. Now, I've told you, like, in two sentences what Bingo Card Creator does and for who, and I've been doing this for five years, and none of y'all have heard about it for more than ten seconds, but just throw out a new headline for Bingo Card Creator. What's something you think that will do better than my best of five years thing, which was, um, I think, uh, make bingo cards on your computer. And someone said, why don't you make your own bingo cards now? I'm like, that sounds like a great answer. It won't possibly beat my best thing, but sure, we'll, we'll just try coding <laughs> that up. And I come back a week later, and there was literally a 40% lift. Like, <laughs> 40 effing percent. And, and that's on sales. That's not... That's, yeah, that was track direct to sales. Like That's not trials. The, that's not, oh, I want to know more. That is direct sales, 40% increase in sales. Right. And somebody who had knew virtually nothing about my business, was able to be something that I'd worked on for a couple of years, which 
man. Um, now, granted, with A-B tests, there's often a bit of reversion to the mean. Uh, so, you know, you get a confidence interval for whether something is, um, whether there's a difference between A and B, but you don't, with the typical way that you do stats for A-B tests, you don't get a confidence interval on what the uh, percent lift is. So it could be anywhere from, like, say, 2% to 80%, and you wouldn't know uh, where in there unless you do more sophisticated uh, statistical techniques that I don't usually bother doing. So, and then that re results in a reversion to the mean effect where, you know, a couple of weeks later, you'll see, oh, well, it's only a 20% lift now. Look, yeah, it, was, it was probably only a 20% the whole time. You just got a bit of a, a bit of a ghost in the machine there. Yeah. But um, be that as it may, like, you would be amazed how often, you know, big companies, um, big, successful, established, the 37 signals, Fog Creek, Google, Microsoft, etc. Um, they run tests years, decades after having re released a product and that has a meaningful impact on their bottom line with not, you know, a huge, huge amount of work. Like something that I often um, tell my clients that have 10-year-old products, like how much work would it be to increase the value of this product to your customers by 1%, you know? If you have a team of tw 20 engineers working on a project for 10 years, there's 200 man years invested in it already. And you've probably already sniffed all the low-hanging fruit in terms of features. So making it 1% better, is that going to require like 5 man years, 10 man years, 20 man years of work to make it 1% better on features? But to make it 1% better in terms of perceived value, that can be as simple as, you know, changing a button copy or changing the headline that you use to, um, that you use on your product's landing page. And, you know, 1% is definitely not the ceiling. You get 5, 10, 20, 100% in some cases. Um, Basecamp did a lot of stuff where they just, you know, played around with the uh, header on the pricing page. And um, yeah. just the header on the pricing page was worth 40, 60%, which that should blow your mind, right? And you're wondering, think, of what, think back, you know, a week ago you were doing something for your business, right? What were you doing last week? Did it get you 40% to 60% improvement in your business's bottom line? If not... Why weren't you doing A-B testing instead? Right. And when you phrase it like that, that always scares the heck out of me, but it's kind of true. It is, it is. And you do need the other stuff. You can't just A-B test your way to a successful business. Right. But at the same time, if you have downtime, if you have any amount of time, mm -hmm. and like we said, one line of code, five minutes. Right. It's not hard to do. If you have that time, you should be doing it. And, and if you set yourself up for, right, you know, just the the routine practice of your business, like you make a new feature and you're wondering, are users going to actually use this or not? Put the new feature in an A-B test. It's simple as putting an if block around it. Yeah. So I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, oh, but then you have to hire a designer and they have to bring a mock-up and it's going to, like, even though it takes one line of code, it's just a pain to think of all these things. I show, well, now I do do graphic design as well, but I show all my stuff to my wife. I show it to um, friends around and stuff. And any comment they make, even if I don't agree with it, even if I think they're batshit crazy, mm -hmm. I try it. I test it because the cost to entry is so low. And if it fails, hey, it failed for three days, and then it's off the charts, right? You're never going to see it again. And sometimes you get nice stuff. I had a very nicely designed welcome page. My wife looked at it and said, it's too busy. Why don't you try having no background? Tried no background, 40% left. Yeah. And the... Um it's a, you know, you often see on, like, Smashing Magazine or whatever, design advice, which typically, I love designers, Keith is a designer, and Keith's <laughs> my best friend, but um, uh, in terms of, like, on the on, on the science or the the science scale, like, a, a lot of designers are closer, closer to leeches than they're to medicine. Like, they, they're like, 
this is, I don't like this design, add more leeches. Um, so trying to make our design more of a medicine, like we're going to, you know, test a treatment in isolation or test a treatment against a placebo and then see if it doesn't kill people. You know, less leeches, more penicillin. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you get advice from designers on like Smashing Magazine, like there was an article recently, if, uh, if your body copy is less than 16 points, oh, like you're losing one. money. Yeah. And that's a great headline, isn't it? Because that is a testable prediction about the nature of reality. So you should be able to test that. Yeah. And I actually did test that. I just made all the copy on being a card creator, 14 points in, one, in half of the population and 16 points in the other half of the population. And sure enough, null results. Uh, null result means that after you know a week and uh, 20,000 people or whatever saw both variations, there wasn't enough data to conclude that 16% was different than 14% along the axis I was measuring. Yeah. So like, good to know, right? Um, right, but, and and what I, I do want to follow that up a little because doing a lot of graphic design myself as well, um, a lot of it is gut instinct. There are a lot of rules to design. There are a lot of rules, but when you say something like anything less than sixteen percent or sixteen point font is unreadable, you real that really has to deal with each page, right? You can't just take any page, make all the font sixteen, and you're suddenly going to have increased conversions. And honestly, for Smashing Magazine to say that was, I mean, it's it's bait. It's link bait, right? Mm -hmm. That's the whole reason they did that. And for some sites, that might get you 20 30%. It's worth testing. Mm -hmm. In Patrick's case, it didn't. I mean, it all has to do with the design. It has to do with how the site feels and for the particular users. Some mm -hmm. users may want a green button. Some users may want a red button. And if your users are the ones who want the green button and you give them a red button, no matter how well it converts on another person's page, it's not going to convert well on yours. So for any design, for anything, you should test it on your own users instead of following just what other people say. Speaking of the culture of users for the minute, because I have an amusing anecdote here. One of the versions of my bingo card creator website was designed by a lady. She's credited in the footer uh, in India. And so I asked her to design a download button for me. And she thought the action associated with downloading was getting something from the website. So think of your hand going out and grabbing something and taking it back to you. So her download button was the word download next to a hand in red uh, displayed like splayed fingers, palms up, exactly like Americans think stop sign, right? And I had to say, hey, you know, in America, uh, splayed finger you know, palm stuff, does not mean, yeah, get this. It means, no, 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 no. Before you click this button, think carefully. Do you really want to download this software? It will give your computers and your Googles a virus. Um, so we, we settled on a design of the download button that did not give their Googles a virus. Um, and that worked better. <laughs> I, I, also, I also liked, um, after that you had another download button, you're very big into the... Um, color contrast, right? You want big, flashy buttons that say, download this now. You had... People make fun of me uh, because there was this... Uh, so I've been saying this stuff about uh, A-B testing and whatnot for years, and um, I make buttons bigger than almost always works better. And one of the uh, uh, English as a Second Language folks on one of my forums uh, was talking one day, and he's like, I know Patrick loves his big orange pancake buttons. And so big orange pancake button is kind of like my keyword for this now. Because big orange pancake buttons really effing work. But except, go ahead. Except for the ones you tried last time. And you, you had put these new ones in. And you were, we were working together. And he just turned to me and said, you know, I have these huge new buttons. And I really like them. But they're just not converting well. I look at them. They were really the ugliest thing I've ever seen. They were just... See, they completely did not fit with the site at all. They were just... Offenses against God, honestly. <laughs> right. See, one of the reasons I 
and I've been trying to get Keith to be my co-founder for the last couple of years. We'll see yeah, if it happens. We'll see if that happens. Yeah, but um, one of the reasons I have Keith in the loop on this kind of thing is because um, there's this, uh, I don't know if it's a skill or an attribute or something you're born with, but it's called taste. And <laughs> whatever day God handed out the taste, I was like, I was studying like, you know, stats for D&D characters or something because I totally missed that taste discussion. Yeah, honestly, so, um, for, for action buttons for Patrick, it's generally bigger, oranger, more pancakey. Yeah. It's, it's pretty much the order it goes in, right? Right. And with, with a little bit of rounding on the side. Oh, I, I love, like the, the, round, I love the rounding. The good pancakes should be rounded and huge. <laughs> huge. Eventually, the Pancake creator is just going to have a giant cir- orange circle on it that says buy now. I literally. We should. Um, a, you should split test that for like um, April Fool's Day. Well, people wanted me to test that for a while. I. I was about to put an 800 by 600 uh, button on my landing pages, <laughs> but um, the only reason I wouldn't do that was, you know, my landing pages get traffic from Google AdWords, and uh, Google AdWords would smash you like a like crazy for violating their their policies in that regards. Oh, speaking of which, um, <laughs> interesting result from Fog Creek. So Fog Creek decided to replace their uh, their Fogbugs homepage with a. So, you know, it's text-heavy. It's trying to sell software to enterprise users, right? And they replaced it with a photo, uh, a logo of their, um, you know, hand-drawn Kiwi. Fogbugs, world's best bug tracking software. Start now. And that was the entire page. Like, no text, no, here's the screenshots, no, none, none of that stuff about it. philosophy, just like, Kiwi, start now. And um, so, yeah, conversions went up. To, like, conversions to the trial went way up. And at the same time, they fell off the internet for all their SEO stuff. And um, so, you know, SEO, A-B testing, whatnot, like, they exist to help the business. Not, the business does not exist to help them. Right. So despite the fact that A-B test was successful, uh, we couldn't, couldn't justify destroying their internet brand uh, to, to continue it. But, you know, amusing to know, right? Right, right. Actually, one thing that you had, you got from a similar test for... Um, Fog Creek was the people love to watch Joel talk. People love to watch Joel talk. I love to I love to listen to Joel talk. I actually listen to the Stack Exchange podcast just to hear Joel talk. Mm-hmm. This is why we are doing a podcast right now, by the way, because Keith was so inspired by listening to the Stack Exchange podcast. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the uh, so and I don't want to like give the impression that this is a my uh, my thing. Like I helped Fog Creek a, you know a few times with regards to their marketing, A/B testing, and whatnot, but. There's people in the company who are doing it pretty much every day, and uh, so one of the things they've been testing is, you know, for the uh, for the front page for their Fogbug software, let's test running, you know, the page design with a flat photo versus the page design with a short, like, three-minute feature video versus a page design with uh, Joel Spolsky talking for an hour, giving, like, an in-depth sales pitch for, like, it's indirectly a sales pitch for Fogbugs, but it's mostly a pitch of how we should do software d- development better, and... People watch that video for the entire hour, and th- this just blows my mind. They've like shown me a graph of you know what the level of attention is for um, at various points in the video, and so if you can imagine like the graph for um, like a Justin Bieber song on YouTube, you know where people like everybody is listening at the first second and then you know X percent listen through the entire song, like it's that graph but stretched out to an hour. Like as many people get through a Justin Bieber song will. You know, for an entirely different audience. Like, there's probably not too many 14-year-old girls looking about bug tracking software. But for the different audience, like, people will watch Joel Spolsky talk for an hour about frog bugs. And then of the ones who watch Joel Spolsky talk for an hour, they are a thing sold. Where is that button? They want it now. 
And actually, that's an interesting trend. I mean, Joel talking for an hour is definitely above and beyond, I think, what most other companies can do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, video has always been the anathema of landing pages, right? You never put video on your um, on your landing page and stuff. Landing Video now on landing pages is converting so much better than just text. And mm-hmm. I think it's really going back to the people don't like to read. Right. They people would do it. not read on the internet. Oh, if you take one thing from this podcast, people do not read on the internet. They will click a play button and listen to a 10-second clip over reading a paragraph. Yeah. Oh, it's... It's insane. And this is one of those, like, engineers have a totally different grasp of how the world works because most of us were precocious readers. We we devour, like, 600-page Lord of the Ring books with no problem. That is severely anomalous behavior among the population at large. So, man, if you install Crazy Egg or something, Crazy Egg will show you what percentage of people actually made it to, like, a particular, you know, portion of a blog post or whatnot. And the world in general, like, TLDR after four words. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Oh yeah, if you use this crazy is why egg, headers like matter so much. By the way, because if they're only going to read one sentence, make that sentence count. Yeah, crazy egg. Um, if you use the scroll map, you will have so much wonderful information on your pages, especially if you have any page that requires scrolling mm-hmm. for more than like maybe three clicks. Mm-hmm. But we just got done saying that people don't read it on the internet, but long copy. So long copy is those lovely long pages copy. that have hundreds and hundreds of paragraphs of. You know, we're going to talk you to death about the subject and just, like, beat you into submission and then give you the buy button and you actually buy. Do people actually buy from these keys? Uh, one of my clients has very, very large, long, 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 long sales pages. Um, I think it's 68 pages printed. And I looked at them and I was like, there's no way people read these. And while a lot of people do, 100% do not read the entire thing, and 40% read the entire thing. 40%. That just blows my mind. It but, absolutely yeah. blows my mind. Especially the interesting thing now is that the sales button is not at the end of the page. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. And yet people read, go to the sales button, actually continue reading, and come back to the sales button in order to click it. And that's just amazing. Now, there are a lot of people. Now, that's 40%. So 60% are not reading it or just skimming around. And it's really cool because... Um, you can see exactly where on the page people will stop, even for a slight amount of time. So there are these pic- there's this picture of this um, kind of cute girl with um, a blue mohawk mm-hmm. on. And I hope I'm not giving out too much, but it's not a public page, so I think it's okay. Um, 60% of people stop at that picture. Like, mm-hmm. they'll just be scrolling. Like, it's 40%, 40%, 40%, and then... Blue mohawk. Blue mohawk, 60%. And the area is just bright yellow. It's like everyone loves looking at this person. People love faces, by the way. Um, oh, it's yes. a great Dave McClure quote. If you put faces on anything, um, you'll draw attention both to the face and to everything surrounding the face. Uh, one of my buddies, Ian, who runs a um, uh, user, oh, shoot, I always forget the name of it, HelpSpot. HelpSpot, it's like a customer help desk software. So um, he just put a photo of himself on the front page. And it's a very small, it's like the, the size of uh, one of those photos that you get on a blog post, uh, you know, at the end of it, like the, by this author photo. And uh, he just put a photo of that under the main content area above the fold on the front page with a, uh, the pre-existing copy about, you know, I'm the founder, this is wonderful software, here's why, yada, yada. And, um, yeah, just adding the photo, like, increased the number of trials by 20%. Yeah. Um, similarly, people, 
I think it's hardwired in people, um, like biologically, that we track gazes very well. So if you find photos of people and looking they have at something, like looking at something, like and you track where their eyes are on the page, all the visitors are going to be looking on that line of sight too. So yes. have that line of sight terminate in you know the form or the sign up button or whatever it is that you want people to take action on. Really, really works well. You can you can search. There's a lot of good articles on that on Google. Mm-hmm. If you search for um, I can't remember was eye tracking. And product placement? I think it's like gaze. The magic word is gaze. gaze. G-A-Z-E. But they've done actual eye tracking experiments, and it is amazing that people will look first at the face and then where the face is looking. Mm-hmm. So if you have a face with someone looking to the left, and to the left is your um, purchase now button, then you have a much higher chance of people clicking on that button than anywhere else on the page. Speaking about the faces, who here has seen a calmly young lady in a headset? So girls in headset photos are kind of like the, you know, they're the visual equivalent of Cosmo's top 10 things that your employer doesn't want you to know headlines. And those persist over hundreds of websites done by hundreds of different highly mm-hmm. sophisticated companies because they effing work. Oh, um, yes. So go to headsethotties.com. It's a real website. Take a look at the, you know, calmly photos of young ladies with a headset thing. Put one on your page. A-B test it. You'll see it go up. I've seen also great variations on that, that they, you know, a lot of engineers told that uh, their software will do 20% better stuff for customers if it just had a photo of a young lady with a headset, get very skeptical of that, and they're just not willing to try it on their website for whatever reason. And hey, you know, it's your business. Uh, Ultimately, that is your decision, right? But um, so there was a company, uh, they had an employee who was in their support department called Bob, and Bob is very much not a, you know, female, blonde, 20-something with a headset. But we put Bob in the headset and took a photo of Bob and uh, and uh, just, you know, put a photo of Bob on the pages with a line that said, Bob isn't pretty, but he actually works here. Send Bob an email. And Bob got a lot of email, <laughs> uh, which, you know, for that company was a, that was the happy result for the page, right? They wanted to get inquiries, you know, addressed to Bob to sell them their uh, five-figure technology solution. So, you know... Um, authenticity works too, but if you're going to be authentic, be authentic in a picture with a person's head on it. It helps. Yes. All right. We've gone almost an hour and a half now. Some of this is going to get on the cutting room floor, but I think that's about time to wrap up. All right. Uh, thanks very much, Keith. We're going to be probably doing this later. Uh, feel free to drop us a comment either in the comment thingy below or on Hacker News or through the emails. Um, yeah. and if you want to give a, your contact information, we'll put it in the post. We'll put it in the post. Um, and as always, Patrick is Patio11. Mm-hmm. I'm Hadi Senbom on Hacker News. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time. All right. Good talking to you. Take care. Bye-bye.